see you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. If you're new, if you don't usually come, especially want to thank you. Today is uh, 10, 10, 10. Did you know that? 10, 10, 10. Very cool. Uh, next time that's going to happen is uh, some many, many years later. So this is a very special day. Very cool. Uh, I was uh, on Facebook yesterday. I got, a, I got an ad. You know, Facebook um, has started getting ads and things and on the side of your profile or something like I think on the side of your profile, they give you these ads and they try and cater it to your interests. So um, I usually get things like, um, do you need a church fundraiser or um, you're going to take seminary classes online, theology online, things like that. For some reason yesterday, uh, I got a little note that says, do you want muscles like Mike the Situation? I was like, what in the world? And they had him like lifting his shirt and you can see his abs and I guess they looked at my profile and said, this guy needs muscles or something like that. And it says, you can get this procedure that will help you to, to get buff and, and big. And I guess, you know, you, you look, around, uh, look around the world and uh, look around here and you see a bunch of people who are wanting to work out and get big and get buff. And it's kind of like this, this, it's this I guess it's always been a trend, so it's not really a trend since it's been there since the dawn of time. But people are doing it, and because there's such a market, there's all these products for it, right? Shake weight and um, uh, Bowflex and uh, the Gazelle and things. And not only products, but programs also, P90X, Beachbody, Insanity. Everyone wants to work out. Everyone wants to get big. Um, for a little bit in college, I worked out, emphasis on, on little bits, a real little bit of time. But uh, for about a month, uh, I, I lived with this guy. Um, he was uh, from my church, grew up in youth group with me. He was huge. Uh, his name, we called him Jinky, but he, he had muscles coming out of like his ears and his fingers, just crazy. And he said to me, you know what, if you work out with me for like a, a, a long, long time, then you can look like me. And so I said, who doesn't, who doesn't want to look like you? I mean, he was, he was a situation before the situation was even a situation. And so uh, I said, yeah, I'll do it. And then after about a month, I was like, no, I don't think this is it. And so I, I kind of stopped doing it. And as you can tell, you see the results before you. But um. I think I'm in the majority when I say um, people want to work out. People want to get big. But you see this every January. Everyone like, signs up for these, uh, these gym club memberships, and they pay an exorbitant amount of money. And then come now, October, October 10th, they realize, that, oh, my gosh, now it's, it's October. Our membership, they, they just sent us a renewal uh, membership fee, and we've only used the gym like four times or five times. And it was all within the first two weeks of January. And a lot of us have these grand desires to get big, but then not much comes out of it. And the tragedy is that oftentimes, more often than not, I would venture to say, um, that's true spiritually also. That a lot of us have this great desire to get buff spiritually, to gain spiritual muscle, but that's where it ends. It ends with these grand desires and grandiose dreams, but not much actualization of the potential for growth. That's what Paul wants to talk about today. So Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn there, if you have your Bibles, not if you don't have it, but if you have it, I would like you to turn there um, or to your iPhone, whatever it is. But um, if you have it, it's good to have it in front of you rather than simply to look at it up here if it does come up up there. Philippians chapter 2, going to read verses 12 through 18. This is God's word. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, 
children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. Uh, Paul begins chapter 12 with this huge word, therefore. Therefore is a word that looks both backwards and forwards. It looks backwards to say, what did we just talk about? In light of that, let's throw this thing forward. And so he's writing in light of this amazing Christ hymn about the incarnation, the humiliation, the crucifixion, the exaltation, the coming glorification of Jesus Christ, this beautiful painting of a picture of who Jesus is. And he says, therefore, in light of that, The things that we talk about, this Christology, this teaching about Jesus, this theology about who Jesus Christ is, is not merely meant to be a theological or a um, intellectual reality, but it is deeply practical in terms of how we live this out in our lives. And so three things that we see in verses 12 through 18 that show us what Paul wants us to see in light of what Christ has done. Three things. The first thing is that it gives us an obedience Okay, that serves a purpose. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is there's an outlook that serves as a witness. And then the third thing, the last thing is there's an outcome that leads, that serves, that, that uh, serves as acts as motivation, that motivates us. Okay, the first thing, there's an obedience that has a purpose. The Christian life is a life of obedience. We all know this. We're, we're called to obey the Lord. But how many of us like obeying just because someone said you need to do this? It isn't that what, what everyone... Um, Kind of a pet peeve when, when you're, we're growing up and, hey, can, uh, stop shaking your leg. Right? My, my parents used to tell me, stop shaking my leg. I say, why? And they're like, because I told you to. I said, okay, uh, I'll, I'll do it. But I didn't like it. And we don't like being told do something just because I said to do it. We want to know why we're doing it. We want to see there's a purpose in it. I go obey. So I remember someone um, sent me an email one time and, and they said, hey, you know, this whole teaching about premarital sex, why, does, why, did, why is it so wrong? Just because the Bible says it's wrong, I don't understand why it's wrong. Uh, they wanted to know the purpose behind why they're seeking to obey God. And in the same way, Paul says, hey, we need to obey, but knowing that our obedience is not just obedience for obedience' sake, but there's a reason and a purpose for our obedience. He says in verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more, in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. He's saying, obey, but do it not just because I'm watching. Remember, Paul was saying, remember when I was there with you, when I was living amongst you and you had the teachings that would become part of Holy Scripture. When you had those things when I was there, remember how much and how well you obeyed. He says, now that I'm not there, I want you to obey even more, to even do, do double time in your obedience because I'm not there. Because we all know what it's like to obey only when someone's watching. We know that that's not really obedience. That's not really obedience. How many of you, hypothetical situations would never happen in our church, but maybe, maybe we're with Sunday worship service. Okay, we're here just like any Sunday morning, and you want to um, text your friends. So you got your cell phone out, or you want to talk with your buddy, or you want to tickle the leg next to them. And, and so you do that. And then as soon as the preacher starts looking, then you... You, you stop messing around, then you, you sit a little bit straighter. And then as soon as a preacher looks at the Bible, right, then you start messing around again. Right, that's not really obedience, is it? When you're only obeying when someone's watching, that's not really obedience. Uh, fourth grade was a very difficult year for me growing up. I was in a mixed uh, grade, fourth and fifth grade mixed class, and so I was on the, on the younger end of the totem pole. 
and uh, just a lot of things going on in my life that, um, you know, the stresses of fourth grade. And so uh, I was living it, and um, I was a bad boy. I did a lot of things to get in trouble. My, my uh, teacher, Mr. Kalin, would write uh, to my parents and would talk to them. Uh, on more than one occasion, my grades started dropping like crazy, except for um, math class. In math class, my, my, not class, but math, my grades were high because my buddy had a calculator watch, right? Those things are kind of not very cool now. But in fourth grade, this, he was way ahead of the curve. Fourth grade was like 1984, so this was like ahead of the game. Uh, we would go under the, he would let, just give us math homework, and we'd just go wherever we wanted to go. And I would, uh, would sit with my friend Stephen, and he would punch all these things into his calculator watch, and we'd write the answer. We'd always get it right. And then we would say, we did the work on scrap paper, and we threw the scrap paper away, so we wanted to give you a clean, neat sheet of paper. And so we all got great grades in math, but everything else, my grades suffered. I um, would, would uh, make obscene gestures behind my teacher's back. He would, he would yell at me, and then he would turn around, and I would do all these bad things to him. And I would put, like, thumbtacks on his chair, right? I would put them on his chair, so he would say, oh, it was bad. It was bad, boy. Um, but this was many, many years ago in the days of antiquity, so... Um, but he, I, would, I would put thumbtacks on his chair. And so my, my teacher got really upset. And so he said, you know what? Um, your child is out of control. He's OC. And so um, they said, uh, can you do something about it? So my parents were kind of at their wits end. And they decided, well, here's what we're going to do. This was utterly embarrassing for me. My mom came to school with me in fourth grade. And for, I think, two or three days out of the week, she sat in class. And she just watched me. That's funny to y'all, but it's traumatic, deeply traumatic to me. These are some of the worst moments. Because I'm, I'm trying to be cool, you know, and trying to make people laugh by, you know, making my teacher, you know, jump up off his seat. And, and she's just sitting there watching me. And my, my, my friends and, uh, and classmates were like, why is your mom here? And I'd just be like, I don't know. She's just here. And, and, you know, yeah, definitely, obviously, when she was there, I would act on my best behavior. But as soon as she was gone, I was evil Knievel again. That's not really, Paul's saying, that's not the kind of obedience I want from you. When I'm there, you're obeying. When I'm not, you're not. That's not really, that's not what I want. That's not what God wants from you. You have to understand that obedience, true obedience, comes because of what we've just seen. Therefore, because of Christ and all that he has done for us and all that he's won for us because of grace. Therefore, we go out in obedience because we're grateful. And the way that we show our gratitude is in our obedience to the call of the one who's given us these commands. He says, but as you do that, understand that your, that your obedience serves a purpose. There's a very clear purpose. And what is that purpose? Here's what he says in verse 12. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, here's what your obedience is doing. Your obedience is working out your salvation. What in the world does that mean? Here's what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say obey because you're working for your salvation. Get that? Because that's what religion is. That's not the gospel. Religion says you work and then you get saved. You work and then you earn your salvation. But Paul says, no, 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 no. You have been saved because of Christ. Remember, he's writing to the Philippian church of people who've already received grace. He's saying, because you've received, now work out your salvation. Here's, here's, what, here's what it means. The implication then, when you work out something, means it presupposes that you already have it. For example, we've got in the front row a great, huge guy named Philip Kim, right? Philip in his red shirt, big buff. He was, on, he was on the situations program. So here's Philip. He works out his arms. Maybe he does. I don't know if he does or he doesn't, but his arms are big. So he works out his arms. Working out your arms presupposes that you've got arms, right? You don't work so that, hey, I'm working, so can you give me some arms? It doesn't work that way. You work out your arms because you've already got arms. You work out your salvation because you already possess 
salvation. That's what Paul is saying here. You don't work for it. You work out your salvation. That's what Paul is saying here. And you work out, working out, everyone knows this, it's, it's hard work, right? It's very difficult work. That's why when on the shake weight commercial, the guy's shaking it for three minutes, and then he's so tired because it's hard work. He's, he's out of breath because he just works so hard. But then he looks in the mirror and he's like, oh my goodness, my arms are huge. They're like Phillips. I've got, this is amazing. He see, he, it's, it's hard work, but then he looks at himself and he realizes that that's not who I used to be. I'm making progress here. The word that Paul uses when he talks about working out is a word that means to maximize the potential, means to bring to full completion. That's what he's saying. He's saying your obedience is maximizing the potential of the salvation that Christ has won for you. That's what you're doing. He said, don't just eek by into heaven. Don't just back your way into heaven. Back it up, back it up, back it up. You see that that video? Back it up. Don't just back your way into heaven. Saying there's so much more that God has for you. You just, that's all you do. Okay, that salvation is there. I've got it. Now I'm going to heaven. Then he's saying, you've got a mine filled with gold, and all you've done is scratch the surface and just picked out one gold nugget. That's literally what the word means. It means to mine every ounce, every inch of this minefield and get all the riches out of it. He's saying, that's what I've got for you. God's saying, that's what I've got for you. And when when he says, work out your salvation, he's like, maximize the full potential that you've got. It's like you see a before and after picture of this guy who's worked out hard. You got this guy who's like really big. He's always wearing a a white cutoff T-shirt, and he's huge, right? And then you see in the after picture, like six months after using the shake weight, he's buff and he's, he's, he's strong. And you're like, that guy came out of that guy? Like, yeah, that was a potential that was there. And by working out, that's what he became. Paul's saying, I look at you now, and there's so much more that God wants to do in you, with you. There's so much more that's there. That Jesus Christ didn't die just so that you can eat your way into heaven, but he died so that your life would be transformed that you would live in the fullness of the blessing and the riches of the salvation that he gave every drop of blood for. Think that's what is awaiting you. That's why you need to obey because it's working out your salvation. Then he says in verse 13, you work hard, but it's not all up to you. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He's saying, okay, you work and work and work, but before you begin to think that it's all up to you, let me pull out the carpet underneath and, and tell you that it's God who's doing all this stuff. It's really all God doing it. You work and you work and you work, but it's all God. So 12 and 13, verse 12 and 13 have to be held in tight tension here. So he gives verse 12 and says, you need to work and you need to work and you need to work out and you need to do all this stuff. And then in verse 13, he says, but it's all God. So before you begin to think that it's all you, he says, it's all God. And then you think, verse 13, it's God who acts in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. So I'm just going to sit back and let God do it all. I'm just going to sit back and let this kind of infusion of power and grace and spirit come up upon me, and then I'm going to obey God. Think before you begin to think that, then remember verse 12, you need to work at it with all of your life. So we work as if it's all up to us, and then when we begin to see results, then we recognize that it's God who's been doing this all along. Then your obedience serves a purpose. It's not just blind obedience, not just obedience just because I said so, or obedience just because, but it's obedience that serves a purpose. That's the first thing. Second thing that we see here, second thing that we see here is there is an outlook on life that serves as a witness. He, he, he goes from the general and he becomes very specific here. He says there's one way, 
that if you, let me tell you one way to, uh, to work out your salvation, one area of obedience, and if you do this, then you'll demonstrate that you're a child of God. You'll be pure and blameless. You'll shine like stars in the darkest night. Someone were to say that. Someone were to say, there's a command that Paul gives here. There's an ethical imperative that he says, if you do this, then you'll show yourself as a child of God, pure, blameless. You'll shine like stars in the universe. What would it be? It'd probably be a lot of things that we'd think of. I need to pray, maybe. Or I need to serve the poor people. Or I need to give money to church. What does he say? Here's what he says, verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. And what is it? Here's what it is. Do everything without complaining or arguing. You can do that, then you show yourself to be a child of God. You shine like stars in a broken, crooked, and depraved world. In light of that, how shiny are we? This is really hard for me, really convicting, because this week, this week I think I complained a lot. Here's what Paul's saying. When you whine, you can't shine. And when you complain, we taint the witness of God in our lives, through our lives, to a watching world. How have you been this week? In every area of our lives, when you went to work this week, did you complain about how awful your boss is or how come I have to do all this work and they're not doing it? I'm being mistreated. When you went to school, did you complain about all the homework your teacher was giving you or complain about the fact that we've got a test and I didn't study for it and, and I got a bad grade and my teacher's so mean and you begin to complain about that? There's a story about um, a guy who wanted to become a monk. Right? So he went enlisted in a monastery. He took the typical vows. There's a vow of, of poverty. Right? You don't go and buy uh, computers when you're a monk. Right? You don't go buying TVs and you just, you just live simply. He took the vow of poverty. He took a vow of chastity. I'm not going um, to be pure. But the third vow he took was a vow that was uh, very difficult. It was a vow of silence. So basically for an entire year, couldn't talk. The only time he could talk, once a year, once a year, and then he could only say two words whatever the words might be, just two words. So he did his first year just devoting himself and, and committing himself to it. And then a year came, the abbot summoned him in, and he said, okay, you can speak now. And he said, bed hard. He went back and did his work. For another year, he worked and he worked, gave himself in full devotion to the uh, work of being a monk. Second year, end of the second year, the abbot summoned him in. He said, you may speak now. And he said, food, bad. And he went back to do his work. He was doing his work for a third year. Third year ended, the abbot called him in, and he said, I quit. <laughs> and so the abbot said, it's no surprise, since you came here from the, fir- from the first time you got here, you've done nothing but complain. <laughs> For three years, that's all you did. And some of us are like that. That's all that comes out of our mouth, potty mouth, right? It's all that comes out of our mouth is complaining and arguing. Right, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do that? And, and sometimes... Sometimes, man, I, I think like, well, sometimes that's us. Just constantly complaining. And Paul says, if you do this, he doesn't say do most of the things you do or do a lot of, or a majority of, 51% of the things you do without complaining. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing. 
I had to stop there. I'm like, dang, I need to, I need to repent. I need to confess this complaining heart in me. I'm not shining because I'm whining too much. What does it mean to complain, to argue? To complain means to kind of mumble under your breath. It's almost like having an internal conversation. It's an attitude. It's like the, the, the toddler, five-year-old kid who went to worship service with his parents, right? And he kept on standing up in a chair, and everyone was staring at him. His dad said, sit down, son. He said, no. He said, sit down. He said, no. He said, sit down, no. And he, he said, if you don't sit down, you're going to go home, and you're going to get time out. So the kid sat down immediately, and he said to himself, he said, I might be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. He said, that's what it means to complain. It's an attitude. It is an attitude of selfishness, of, of, of just, I've got the raw end of the deal. And then arguing is when you take that and then you make that implicit and it begins to affect and poison a community. This is arguing and complaining. When, when Paul writes about these things, here's what, he's, he's, he's already, <laughs> here's what he wants the Philippians to think. Think of complaining, think of arguing. As they think back in their minds, immediately their minds are taken back to the ancient Israelites. Where the Israelites, they were called to be a light to the Gentiles, a light unto the world, a light to the nations. That's who they were. But they forfeited their call. Why? Because in the wilderness wanderings, they were complaining, they were arguing, they're bickering. And though they did it against Moses, the Bible says that they did it against God. When we complain, even though it be against human beings, we're complaining against God. That's what we're doing. It's a sin against God. Now, why is it that he says... Something very interesting here. In these commands that Paul is giving throughout the book of Philippians, and particularly here, it becomes crystal clear here, and then in chapter 4 when it talks about rejoicing in the Lord. One of the things that we see is that these commands to work out our salvation by doing everything, uh, doing everything without complaining or arguing, these commands are not individual commands that say, hey, look, check it out, James Lee, do everything without complaining, you. Or he doesn't say, hey, um, you know, Herman Al Rosell, don't do, do everything without complaining. You as an individual, work out your individual salvation. All of these things are plural commands. So he's saying, y'all, work out your salvation. But it's not just plural, it's a reflexive plural. So here's what he's saying. He doesn't just say, work out your salvation as individuals with fear and trembling and do everything without complaining or arguing. He's saying, y'all, work out your salvation amongst yourselves. That's what he's saying. In other words, he's saying you cannot fulfill the potential that God has for you. You cannot maximize the gift of salvation if you're not in community with one another. And here's the tragedy for the ancient Israelites. There's a group of them, millions of people, however many it was. Got a bunch of Israelites. Here we are, we're walking around, and one person starts complaining. Say, dang it, Moses, we should be back in Egypt. Moses, you're dumb. And then another person says, you know what, you're right. Moses, you're stupid. Another person says, Moses, what are you thinking? And then all of a sudden, this this attitude of grumbling. The tragedy is that they did not help one another to obey the commands of God. They led each other further and further and further away, thereby forfeiting the witness and dimming the light that God had given to them as a people of God. The question is, as you live in community with one another, do you help one another to shine and to live out and to maximize the potential that God has for you? As you live in community with one another, do you lead each other closer and make each other brighter as you draw nearer to the salvation that Christ has won for you? Or do you lead each other further and further and further away? It's not just amongst your friends, not just in your cell church or Sunday school. I'm talking about husbands and wives, brother and sister, boyfriend and girlfriend, friend and friend. Are you helping 
one another, work out your salvation? Are you doing this together so that you look at each other six months later and you say, you know what, look at who we were and look at who we are. We've both grown because we've helped each other and we have reflexively worked one another out in our salvation. This is pretty searing, isn't it? As an indictment against the people of God who live in a way other than is commanded in Scripture. That's the second thing. The third thing that we see then, there's an outcome that serves as motivation. Paul says uh, in verse 16, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Paul says, you know, here, here it is. I've given you the gospel, something that you look backwards at. I've given you the fact that you're in community with one another, something that you do in the present. But sometimes we need more motivation than that, don't we? Sometimes that's not enough motivation for us to really live for Christ. The fact that I've got people watching me, the fact that I've got friends around me praying for me, the fact that I've got the gospel in my rearview mirror, sometimes that's not enough. We need more motivation. And so motivation oftentimes drives us to action. There's a guy, and I I debated about this because I don't know the political correctness of this. So um, if I get enough bad looks, then we can delete this off of the recording. But we'll try it. there's a 300-pound man. He's a Christian. He tried to lose weight, but he couldn't get over this hump, and he kept on eating junk food. And he went to his pastor one day. He said, you know what? I need help because I can't lose weight. All I do is eat, 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 and I can't get a date. I can't get a date. It's, it's a problem for me. I want to get married one day, and it, it's not happening. And so he said, can you help me? The pastor said, I think I can help you. Just be ready at your door at 8 a.m. tomorrow. I said, okay. 8 a.m. tomorrow, doorbell rings. He expects the pastor to show up. And instead, he sees this beautiful woman in a jogging suit. And she says, pastor says, if you can catch me, you can marry me. And so she takes off running. (laughs) So he takes off running. He's chasing after her, and obviously he can't do it. After six months, though, he loses 125 pounds, and he's right close to catching her. He says, tomorrow's going to be the day. Tomorrow's going to be the day. So he goes to sleep happy, wakes up the next morning, excited, doorbell rings, opens the door, and there's this 300-pound woman. And she says, pastor says, if I can catch you, then I can marry you. (laughs) So sometimes we need extra motivation to do the things that we're trying to do. And so Paul says here, Let me give you my motivation for why I do the things that I do. Working out is hard, but if we've got the right motivation, we can do it. And he says, here's my motivation, that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. That's his desire. That's why he's pushing. Here's how he understands the communal nature of salvation so deeply that he says, if you work out your salvation, if you shine, then my reward in heaven is going to be greater. Is that's why I'm pushing you. That's why you need to do this. Because not only on earth, but in the life to come, our lives affect each other's lives. And he says, so I'm giving all of myself to you. His worst nightmare is that he'd wake up one day and he would look back on his long life and say, I've wasted it. I've run this race for nothing. Like the Olympian who trains and trains and trains for four years and then gets to the Olympics And then he pulls his groin muscle in the preliminary and can't run for the medal. Or it's like the guy who trains and trains. Remember that that 15-year-old Korean swimmer in the Olympics maybe six years ago, seven years ago, however many years ago. 15 years old, trained and trained and trained. And then twice he false started and he got disqualified, had to go back home 
this country without ever being able to swim for the medal. Paul said, that's my greatest fear. Then I'll do all this work, and I'll do all this work, and do all this work, and then I'd look back, and i say, I ran, and I labored for nothing. What would cause him to say, I did it for nothing, if the Philippians lose sight of the goal, and they stop working out their salvation with fear and trembling? Because that's why I need you to do this. It's not just for you. It's not just for the glory of God, but my life is at stake here. It's my personal investment into you. And if you do it, here's what he says in verse 17, and being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming for your, from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Because look, this is why. This is why I'll gladly pour my life out. Here's what a drink offering was. In those days, there would be all these offerings in the, uh, in the ancient Israelite time, in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices that needed to be made. Grain offerings, take care of the sin, to take care of the guilt, to take care of all of the things, and they would make their offerings, different offerings. And then a drink offering would be poured out on top after all the offerings were done, be poured out on top, as kind of the cherry on top of the Sunday, and its purpose was to say, thank you, God, for all that you've done. Let me break this down here and make it a little bit clear in this context. Paul's saying, I have every reason to complain. I'm in jail. It could very well be that at the end of my trial, I'm going to be sentenced to death. For the sake of Christ, I have been beaten, I have been whipped, I've been shipwrecked, I've been stoned, I've been lashed, I've been hit, I've gone in poverty, I've gone hungry, I've gone sleepless nights, been chased by bandits, been chased by pirates, been abandoned by my friends, and yet I don't complain, but I pour my life as a thanksgiving offering to the Lord God. Because no matter how hard my life may be, I'm not going to complain because I deserve so much worse than that. And if I get to suffer for the sake of the one who saved my soul, then the only thing I have left to give is an offering of thanksgiving to my God. That's all it is. He says, when I wait for that day, that's what drives me. That's what motivates me. What challenges me to give my life, not only for me to live in obedience, but for you to live in obedience. It says, when I stand in that place and, and all I see, all of these sufferings of the life that I live now become, are, are faded away and gone. And I stand in that place where there's no weeping, no mourning, no tears, no sickness, no death, none of all that stuff. And the only thing I see coming before me is brighter than the day, brighter than the sun, is the one, and I look upon his face, the one who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And being found in human appearance, a man, he came and he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He says, when I see him, and all this stuff that I've been through is going to fade away and it's going to dissolve into nothingness. And I'll realize that when I stand before him, that everything I've done has all been utterly for it, worth it, for him who gave himself for me. It's because he did that. Jesus Christ, for our sake, poured out his life, poured out his blood as an offering for you and for me. We too can go and pour out our lives for him and for others. Let's take a moment to pray and respond to his word.
As we've been living this life, our hearts have been filled with complaining and arguing more than they have been with thanksgiving and worship and glad obedience. That's us. Let's take a moment to confess before the Lord these things. Let's ask that he would forgive us and that he would fill our hearts with the gospel so that we might live out of thanksgiving and gratitude rather than out of a spirit that says, I deserve better. I should have more. I need to be well, better treated than I am now. Instead, we say, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well with my soul. What does that look like in our lives for us to respond to his word, to work out obedience, to work out our salvation? Let's take a moment to come before the Lord as we lay our lives on the altar and say, thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. Here's my acceptable, reasonable act of service and sacrifice to you. Let's take a moment to pray to the Lord and ask that he would take our hearts, that he would help us to live in obedience to his call in us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Father, we ask that you forgive us, you forgive me for how easy it is for me to disconnect what you've done in the first part of chapter 2 with the second part of chapter 2. How easy it is for me to worship the Christ who did all of these great things and then to go and complain without recognizing that the reason I live is because of grace. Would you forgive me and forgive others in here who have fallen short in this way and that you'd replace complaining with praise. Would you replace arguing with worship. That you'd replace grumbling with thanksgiving and that you'd help us to shine, shine for the whole world to see. We thank you, Jesus, that this is who you are, that you're worthy of our lives. Mold us and make us, and by grace, help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Thank you. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name.